My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Molly Shanahan. Molly is the Canadian-born U.S based choreographer, dancer, educator, thinker, and writer behind Mad Shack, a Chicago-based organization, an incubator for dance making and teaching through shared creative process. Molly writes, we prioritize deep exploration of movement and inquiry into what human experience and response drives our movement choices. Molly's career has led to the development of a framework called Spiral Body Techniques, a way of teaching movement and dance that emphasizes the intrinsic system of fluidity, spirals, undulation, and curve that allow a dancer mover to navigate complex movement patterns with ease, safety, and joy. I am delighted to share this conversation and grateful for the learning experience through it. I'm Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. Welcome. So happy to have you. So um, we've never met before. I know. I know. (laughs) So it's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. Um, But I've seen you. And I'm friends with Christina Flutie, so. Yes, she speaks very highly of you. Oh. Yeah, yeah she was glad that, that you connected. So I'm, yeah, she's wonderful. Uh, yeah. 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 And when I was in Chicago uh, teaching an authentic movement class for the Embodied Education Institute, our classroom was just to the side of yours. And during yes. all the breaks, the students would just like hang out and oogle. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's so lovely that's funny that's yeah. really yeah you were working on a performance I think at the time and yeah I'd love to um hear a little bit about um your origins mentors um the naming and development of Mad Shack um, and your journey, your journey to come into what feels like uh, matured art form. Thank you. (laughs) That's nicely put. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, so my origins, I was born in Canada. I'm, I'm Canadian by birth. I have dual citizenship. And um, both my parents are, were, my, my mother's no longer alive. My father is, um, they were both born in Detroit. So right across the Detroit river from Windsor, um, we lived for some years in a small town in Ontario, um, right up like above a bluff or on the top of a bluff above Lake Huron. And that experience of living both in the small town, 
but also in that sort of geographic situation on land, you know, above a gorgeous body of water was really formative for me. And, you know, I was at a very young age, which would probably not be the case anymore, just given the, you know, sort of the evolution of the world. Um, I had a lot of freedom to, you know, to ride my bike around and find places on the bluff to sit and, and watch and listen to the lake. And I spent a lot of time like that, you know, in between more extroverted forms of playing and it had a real impact on me. And then my parents divorced and my mom moved with us. Uh, there were three kids in that family moved with us to Detroit, her home town and where her family was. And it was, of course, you know, a really abrupt move. Um, I had some really naive ideas about um, like racial harmony. As a young kid, I thought that a place with a diverse population would also have harmony. Uh, a, a kind of harmony that sounded um, really appealing to me. And of course, that was not the case. And so that was, you know, really jarring. But also being in Detroit meant that we had access to, you know, some early arts education and some opportunities to perform as, as young kids, um, which was also really formative we were my sister and i were in the children's chorus of michigan opera theater for a production of la boheme and that um experience of being among professionals on a stage and it was a raked stage so you know, there's so much history there uh really i think formed and shaped me and around that time i also learned for the first time that my father's family included um of vaudeville stars uh, named the Four Mortons. And, you know, they were long past at that point, but I had a sense of show business being in my family and wound its, that knowledge wound its way in to my sense of lineage you know, I, I've only heard stories about those members of my family, my my great grandparents and two sets of great aunts and uncles. And, you know, there's some bad and some good, but the sense of history in a theater space is very present for me. And I appreciate it. I have a sense of especially um, female ancestors navigating that space. Anyway, I'm not sure if this is a digression. <laughs> I love digressions. I'm okay, a fan of digressions. Okay, okay cool, cool. <laughs> so uh, in Detroit, my mother was very active in securing opportunities for us. And she you know, took me to an audition for uh, admission with scholarship to Detroit Country Day School in the suburbs. And I was awarded a scholarship and decided to go. And that was, a, you know, a key decision because it put me in contact with a different demographic, a, a range of different demographics. And I became a cheerleader. And as a cheerleader, 
that's really where I understood myself as a mover and a dancer. I also took some dance classes at Mary Grove College where my mom uh, was on staff and that was around the same time. And so I had this dual sense of an emergent sense of myself as a mover and um, that there was a field called modern dance. That's what I, that's how I knew it at the time. And my main outlet was cheerleading and choreographing routines for the cheerleading squad and learning, I mean, quite literally learning how to use my voice and learning some leadership skills <clears throat> and some skills in teaching movement um, in a way that was, I mean, cheerleading is to a fault in some sense, like very clear, you know, the, the movement qualities are very clear and mostly bound, but not entirely bound. So anyway, that was, that was, you know, really formative for me. And when it came time to choose a college, I, I chose one with a dance department and I didn't know if I would major in dance or if I would, you know, I didn't know what would come of that, but I did sort of make sure to choose a college that had a dance department. And that, that college is Denison University. And my experiences at Denison, I'll try to sum this up because it's a much, much longer story that will need to be told in a different format. My experiences at Denison were extremely traumatic and stayed with me for decades. Um, I had a very good relationship for a very long time with the dance department and the university overall. Um, and it was really there that I learned and I immersed myself in dance and enjoyed a whole lot of that and felt, you know, I, I, I think I compartmentalized my experience of dance as a safe place. Um, and that served me really well for a while and it, and it stayed with me for a while. Um, and I, you know, I think there were some good markers of an education in dance. I certainly also learned that dancers tend to speak up. <laughs> and that was an important, um, an important early lesson. And then I went straight from Denison to Ohio State to get a master's degree for two years, which was, you know, amazing and horrible and hard and wonderful and illuminating and all the things that graduate school is. And I was extremely young. Um, at that point, I had an eating disorder, uh, which I think sort of emerged out of some of the experiences that I had at Denison. And those things are important in my trajectory because I was fully invested in becoming a dance artist and specifically a choreographer. And I was already very tangled up in internal conflict about bodies, what, what my body looked like, felt like, how I took care of it, uh, what its role was in my life. And I was very um, confused and, and embattled about 
the messages that I grew up with about bodies, especially women's bodies, and and certainly especially women's bodies on stage or in, you know, in any kind of um, art where bodies are being viewed. Um, and I think that the that combination of drive to be in dance and the conflict around body, you know, ultimately shaped the next two plus and and still counting, um, you know, decades of my career. Because once I moved to Chicago, I started uh, what was called Mad Shack Dance Company almost immediately. It was made up of dancers and quote unquote non-dancers, um, including musicians. And I was really very keen to cultivate this interdisciplinarity where you know, risks could be taken, experiments could be engaged. And there wasn't a sharp dividing line between who was a trained dancer and who wasn't, or who was a trained musician and who wasn't. And that spirit, you know, really fueled the first five, six, seven, maybe almost 10 years of the company. Um, you asked about the name and <laughs> it's kind of a, I mean, as, as we were preparing for our first performance and I was deciding what to call this thing for the marketing materials, I, at the time, I didn't want my name to be front and center because I was invested in a, in this egalitarian approach. And so I first or last initials from all of the people who were involved at that time and you know created this sort of anagram of mad shack i guess it was kind of punchy you know it was like it's funny to me now because of course shack is not spelled correctly um this was my early 20s there was something appealing about the idea of well i mean i don't i haven't really talked about this ever but you know the the segmenting of, you know, what constitutes sanity in an insane world. And so, you know, the notion, the the kind of trope of the mad woman or the mad person was already appealing to me as a kind of um, indicator, marker of some of the insane conditions of the world and the insane ways that we type people and bodies. So the company will be 30 years or is 30 years now. It's 2024. Congratulations. And, oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's a labor of love, as you know. Um, many times over those decades, I have thought about completely changing the name. And we now operate as Molly Shanahan slash Mad Shack. And, you know, that was sort of the first step to, to where I said, you know, no, I think my name actually should be front and center. I am the lead artist and I should own that and um, own my responsibility as well as um, credit myself with the amount of lifeblood that I was, you know, was and am putting into the company. And the, you know, sort of the emergence of my own awareness that I I did have a vision that was manifesting through the work 
anyway, so I've many times thought about dropping the Mad Shack altogether, but then it's sort of taken on this um, you know, sort of interesting. I think people think of it as the ensemble. And I like that the ensemble doesn't have to resort to using my name, you know, so it, it has stuck around. The name has stuck mm -hmm. around. Anyway, I'll just tie the loop up that I was talking about um, this, this sort of conflict around bodies at a certain time, I think it was, it was around 2005. I was a grown adult and I realized that the eating disorder was really out of hand. Um, and as those things happen, you know, they're often hidden from view, the, the ways that people control uh, their food intake and their concerns about those kinds of things. So anyway, I, I got help. I sought treatment specifically for the eating disorder. And that was really a crucial, I mean, I don't know why I'm like telling you the medical history because what was going on then for me in terms of movement was that I was also, you know, as I faced up to that, that challenge and that kind of ghost that had stuck with me since um, my late adolescence, I was also you know, taking Feldenkrais very seriously, rereading some of the Feldenkrais texts that had been so obscure to me when I was an undergraduate. And all of a sudden they were, they were making sense. And I was beginning to understand how much I was limiting my movement potential by trying to appear smaller and, you know, trying to control my center. And um, so it was a fortuitous time to kind of confront the disordered eating, the attempts to be smaller, the attempts to minimize at the same time that I was feeling in my body how much potential there is when flesh is acknowledged as a part of the moving self and of our whole. And so I became, I started to become very friendly with, tender about, you know, aspects of my flesh that I had not been previously, you know, fat and loose flesh and uh, rounded shape. And that, of course, is a lifelong process. It didn't, it wasn't like flipping a switch. But what, what was like flipping a switch was learning to release my abdominals. And when I say release my abdominals, I'm really, I'm flagging, releasing and re-engaging, you know, sort of figuring out that the abdominal musculature is not there to tighten, minimize, and exert aggressive control. You know, years of back pain resolved and my dancing became much more thrilling, fun, um, you know, rooted in sensation. So that conflict was the beginning of me really finding a deeper layer of my my movement voice and my artistic voice and it's wow. that it's that process that has really fueled then you know the last almost 20 years 18 years or so yeah such uh, such an incredible um history and um reflection personal but also uh collective 
Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the start of what you talked about was the lake, right? Yeah. You talked about yeah. sitting on the lake. Lakes don't really worry about their size. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. And, and you know that the movement was about wave pattern and undulation and spiral and, and ebb and flow. Um, yeah, when you were talking about the abdomen and the and the abdominal muscles, I was thinking about that, like so much of the um, discipline and control of dance has been gripping <laughs> tension, yes, yes. as yes. opposed to um, understanding the mechanism, like there's, yes. there's a wide mechanism to the abdominals. Extremely. And the integration of the abdominals into the whole is, is a given of humanity. And I, I think it's important to, to also kind of be, be clear increasingly that the restriction of the abdominals is emblematic in particular of uh, white dance and Eurocentric dance. And the the traditions of central control um and yes you're right it is it's a personal that area of of studying and being with one's movement potential and and body habits around control and release is both deeply personal um often you know quite private and sometimes i would say more than sometimes almost all the time includes vulnerability and at the same time, when one starts to engage with how, you know, how my center body responds and relates to my own life circumstances, my own emotions, certain situations as opposed to other situations, and this is all outside of dance, you know, not to mention how the movement of the abdominal or, you know, the orchestration of the whole abdominal system facilitates such profound freedom of movement. And there's no way not to, in my experience and in my own personal experience, but then in my experience teaching, you know, hundreds of students through this lens, there's no way to avoid the other shoes dropping of the of cultural critique you know of realizing one's influences both in terms of education and early life but also in terms of the kinds of comments and humor and assumed values that are repeated every day in interactions with people even even very well informed people yeah know? yeah you you said um, trying to appear smaller, like that was a defining aspect of how the movement, the yeah. performance oriented. Yeah. And that was something you shed, which was essential to the development of what my students and I saw <laughs> and appreciated as luscious. Mm-hmm. And the exercise I think that you were doing that we witnessed was a sequence of movements, but people were kind of inhabiting them with their own pacing 
um, in a way that is so honoring to difference. Yeah. Right. Like bringing people together to do something that is shared, but they're, they're tracking how their own breath and abdominal connection mm -hmm. paces into the movement. It was so exquisite. Oh, I'm so glad that you saw that and that, that you mentioned that, um, that aspect of my teaching is, is relatively new. It's in the last five years and maybe more explicitly since, since COVID, uh, I think it was a, it really clarified for me during COVID that the idea of agreeing on the pacing of movement in a class was, is only necessary in very certain circumstances, you know, in very particular circumstances where safety is involved or perhaps where what you're working on specifically is finding a kind of unification of understanding of time and flow and pacing and relationship. But when we're in the room, you know, working on these movement patterns uh, or these movement phrases, the knowledge of the individual dancer that can get erased when they're told based on timing or music where to be when um, or when to be where, you know, a lot of the really important you called it luscious, and I think that's that's a good word for it. The lusciousness of learning how one's body navigates a particular set of pathways can be lost or erased or minimized. The the, the rough edges that are so essential for understanding one's own body process in that moment can be filed down or smoothed away. Yeah, it reminds me so much of um, like developmental movement. Mm -hmm. healthy yes. healthy developmental movement in terms of that um lemniscape mm. between the space within me the connections mm -hmm. within me and other and environment which when i hear you talking about some of the trauma of dance what comes up for me is the culture of criticism, the insecurity about body, the voices that are always um, cutting, <laughs> trying to shave off the part, what's in, yeah. what's inside. So that lemniscaping process for many of us, I think, gets, you said, um, compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I can't actually access the emotions that are coming up right now in this in this space of criticism or whatever inadequacy um uh vulnerability yeah and so i'm gonna stay in just trying to create an external form to please yes. someone else yes exactly and to exactly yep and to you know to avoid being called out for my difference in in environments where difference becomes equated with failure and it's such a double bind you know that the, because there is in in arts in general but i would say certainly in significant aspects of like development there is a huge emphasis being put on being an individual and then at the same time you know uh maybe a larger emphasis on conforming and not stand you know not standing out so you're supposed to stand out at the same time that you don't stand out 
Yeah. And dancers are so incredibly intelligent. And what when I say intelligent, I mean whole self intelligence. And there aren't enough opportunities for dancers to be together. I'm just repeating what you said in a different way to be together working with their unique intelligence. And for example, teaching a phrase of any length and saying to the dancers and really encouraging, you know, go at your pace. Sometimes you'll go faster. Sometimes you'll go slower. You could be radically different than the person next to you. We will find our way back to a place of restarting. And we always do. Chaos never erupts. There is always a sense of understanding this. um, I do think of it as a wave pattern, you know, this wave pattern of time where all of the droplets of water don't need to be contained in one drop, you know, that there, there are differences of pattern. And at the same time, through those differences of pattern, we find how to relate to each other and how to begin again. And all of that calls on dancers having an understanding of their interior space and recommitting in an ongoing way to that interior space because adaptability is so, you know, it's, it's tremendously potent in that space. It's, it's easier to access one's capacity to course correct, to speed up, to slow down when one is in that space of, of internal self-awareness while gauging what's happening in the space. So I think it, it makes for not only a better experience for dancers, but it also is cultivating the very tools, certainly for my work, to be able to do work that is responsive and that includes moments of real unison or, or moments of, you know, appearing to do things at the same time, you know, that, that, that is coming from an understanding of difference of different experience. So we can catch the moment of coherence in relationship. It's much easier. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it, it takes more time perhaps, but it's much easier at the end of the day for me to work that way than to work on obedience and conformity. That's actually much harder and it should be, you know, it's, it's once we're in obedience and conformity, we're also in resistance and that's not, that's just not how I want to spend my time in the field. And it's not the influence I want to have on, on other people. I don't want to do that. It is sort of this trust in what you're describing that there can be there can be difference and there can be individuality and there can be uh asynchrony yes there can be contrast yeah right so we so as i was witnessing that was part of what and and because authentic movement is the practice that is sort of my my primary practice very often that that's part of what i'm witnessing is moments of uh symmetry mm-hmm. moments of almost choreography although people's eyes are closed right um but that's what i was witnessing in in your class as well was moments where people were were like the energy <laughs> was ushering people into synchrony and then they were yes. given permission 
to move the next portion and and our listeners may not i hope that they go to your website to see some of the uh videos that of performances and things because i want to just describe a little bit also but some of the movement that you do it's very it is very rounded it's very like um i want to say based off of uh yeah yeah waves circles in the body i think it's called spiral like our body techniques spiral body techniques so like moving to the ground in a spiral coming up from the ground in a spiral which appears you know sometimes getting up off the ground can be like real challenging it's effortless when it's integrated that's kind of the feel that we that we witness so it's not that there isn't any moment of sharpness at all there might be um there might be an intake of breath with a moment that's a little bit uh more abrupt or something but in general what you're witnessing is this flow which translates for me as a witness into trust there's Mm -hmm. like a quality of like i can i can practice this and bring more ease into rising and falling into traveling yes yeah yes and in fact i that's Thank you for that reflection. Um, yes, e- more ease, more ease. I think, you know, the for me, a huge area of study and focus in my teaching and in, in the teaching of teachers, because that's something that I've started to do with spiral body techniques, um, is the ball and socket joints, you know, the the four ball and socket joints. And there's a kind of endless play and study that can happen when we remember the potential of those ball and socket joints, not in isolation of the other parts, certainly, but in in coordination and in communication through the body and from the body, you know, into space and back into the body, that the uniqueness of those four joints, you know, to flex, extend, and rotate provides this I use the term rhizomatic a lot, which is, um, you know, meaning continuous proliferative growth that um, where, you know, moments that appear even to cut off the connectivity, new growth then appears. Um, and so rhizomatic is a term that is comes from botany, but it's also been taken up by um, French theorists. Um, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, who I wrote about and researched and wrote about in my dissertation, you know, in in their construct, the rhizomatic refers to thought. And so the continuous proliferative growth of thought. And, you know, this is really offered as an alternative way to view the movement of knowledge and even in some cases the movement of power right so the rhizome as a as both a metaphor and um a a real event that happens in you know root rhizomatic root structures in botany so i mention that because you know i think that the ball and socket joints in my experience the ball and socket joints are the the joints that require some re-honoring and and re reawakening 
in most movers, simply meaning most humans, simply given the linearity and forward thrust, and that's a term I'm borrowing from, from Emily Conrad, the linearity and forward thrust of regular pedestrian movement, you know, getting around in the world. And that I think it's possible to for our systems to forget temporarily and need to be reminded of what becomes possible when we have these conduits for movement and relationship. And so I think that's it's by no means am I suggesting that it's all about the ball and socket joints, but there's a lot of like technically speaking, there's a lot of emphasis for me in the in the in understanding the potential and flow of and effort and release in the surrounds of the ball and socket joints. And I think it's that specifically where ease can be encountered safely. The thrill of the thrill and the terror of falling can be navigated with, with a sense of expertise. Um, and you're absolutely right. In, in terms of trust, once you're in a flow, once you're move, once there is flow in movement, the safest place is the next place. It's not the place you just left. It's the next place. It's falling forward into the next place and, and trusting yourself to navigate whatever needs to happen in that next place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to take that advice in general. <laughs> Here in the in this in January of the new year. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> yes. So um the question that I ask the people that I interview is how is embodiment to you so far in the interview? You've really um created a, a sort of a scaffolding for this, but I want to give you a chance to kind of speak to that of um how is embodiment? Well, the first thing that comes to mind uh, that I that is that I'm working with right now, and that I I talk about a little bit in my teaching, but not as much as I probably will in the year and years to come, which is that you know I think I'm going to just try this on. You know, and I might, I might say, oh, that was an attempt. I want to try again. But, you know, I think embodiment is response. I'm someone who lives with PTSD and um, I'm in, you know, I'm in recovery with PTSD and making some terrific strides after, you know, a long time. And so I have more respect for my body and its trauma response than I did previously in thinking that that trauma response was somehow a barrier to my body or a um like a unwelcome snafu you know an unwelcome <clears throat> glitch and I, so what i'm learning is that there is no and this this was this is where i would maybe disagree with Feldenkrais, not that it's important, not that, I mean, that's not my platform. I love Feldenkrais, but I, I, I'm not sure there's an optimal state. I, I, I really bought that idea of Feldenkrais that the optimal state is a state of movement. 
And I mean, I think, you know, life is movement. We're always moving, but, you know, living bodies are movement. But I'm also newly aware of my own response to trauma as being profoundly hesitant about movement. And that's the piece that, you know, previously I would have thought of as something that I needed to almost goad myself out of, you know, like just do it, just move. And I am increasing in my respect for what it means, especially for a dance artist who has spent, you know, their whole adult life getting up and getting moving, what it means to listen to that slowness as a wise response and to include it within my own concept of embodiment rather than as a barrier to embodiment. Because I think once I get into a notion of embodiment looking a particular way, then I'm into what I'm into form and shape instead of relationship and response. And I, yeah, I'm going to go back to the lake for a moment because I think that that early experience of witnessing change, change and continuity, right? Because I mean, that is what the, the Great Lakes tides are, is change and continuity both. That that is foundational. It's not dependent upon achievement or success or even a feeling of joy or comfort. It is the state of being. And that includes response to what is occurring in one's life, in the world. And certainly my own history probably includes some of this idea that through my embodiment, I will overcome the things that are affecting me, whether they're affecting me from afar through the news and, you know, internationally, or they're affecting me right close up in my immediate sphere. <clears throat> I think I thought of, you know, embodiment as a kind of romantic way or romantic word of finding ease, flow, positivity, comfort, return to something. And so where I am now is, I think, just a, a greater level of wanting to honor the reality of body response and experience. And so that's why I'm saying embodiment is response. <laughs> and some of that response is deeply um, personal, private, intrinsic. So much of that response is intrinsic. It is within the tissues. And if I think of those intrinsic, if I, if I start to put my intrinsic experience into categories of good and bad, then I'm going to miss the real jewels of what my own full experience when owned um, can offer me. That was so moving to me, just hearing you say that. Um, and that feels like, once again, an indicator of the maturity of the connection you're describing with this place that is you, this lake that is you. The temptation is always to be like, oh, embodiment can be a tool, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Let's use this thing to try to be more effective and efficient <laughs> in the world, yes, <laughs> right? 
Um, and there's space for that. Like sometimes as a, as a clinician, like that's really where we start is like uh, this breath is going to help you to be more present in your life and deal with feelings in a concrete way. And what you're describing is sort of like an artist that goes from painting naturalistically to painting expressionistically and a more contemplative approach to your Mm -hmm. own being right the words that came up were to me was like a compassionate um Mm -hmm. like i will track this not because i'm expecting it to change yeah i'm going to track it and and also that piece of slowing down and you talk about like the micro movements which is by the way standard in um <laughs> in the contemporary um clinical work for trauma therapy like that is what people absolutely do. <laughs> yes. down and pay attention to yes. micro movements right yes. but what you're describing is not so much for the purpose of processing trauma but for the response to the ongoingness of being. So that's where it becomes very, to me, like a contemplative practice that there's even perhaps instead of, oh, this is a scary thing that's coming up or this is good or bad, that's not the conversation. It's more, how is this wisdom? Mm -hmm. And how am I attentive or not to it? Yes, and you know, Kim, I'm so glad you said that about um, you know, contemporary trauma approaches, because I, without a doubt, this, this, my current thinking about my own body and embodiment comes from having the influence of a few years now of somatic experiencing therapy practiced by someone really fantastic who we have many moments of hilarity because there are things that you know she she asks me to try that are right in the wheelhouse of what I think I do when I'm teaching and yet when I'm when I'm in a session with her and she asks me to do it my first impulse is often to roll my eyes and be like oh god here we go with this noticing stuff right And we laugh about it because I'll say to her, I don't know where this resistance is coming from because this is, this is something that I do in my own work. Well, of course the resistance is coming from the fear of what slowing down and paying attention to those micro movements, you know, will bring up and then building in, you know, you're saying this beautifully and then building the skillfulness with going slow and not having to do it all at one time. Um, and not having to promise oneself that I will ever go to the deepest, darkest parts of that trauma, right? But building that sense of this is me right now, this is me right now, this is me right now. And I feel lucky that we live at a time when trauma is, you know, it's it's actually, you know, very possible to heal trauma more so than it was 30 years ago. Or even even you know 15 years ago, the the knowledge about trauma that has that has grown in you know in my lifetime in our lifetimes is just it's just incredible. And when I am working with uh, Jean, my therapist, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm healing right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the focus is on 
what do you notice? What do you notice? And it is that slowing down and paying attention to intrinsic experience. It's in, it's in the long game of living life with that reminder and that support that um, I notice healing start to occur. Dance is so often about achieving another sort of layer of expertise, whatever one has determined is the ladder of expertise, that there is always this next thing we want to do or a thing we used to be able to do a little bit better and we want to get back to, you know, there's always this constant striving, constant striving, constant striving. So I suppose what I'm really articulating is that working with a somatic experiencing practitioner on traumatic response is teaching me what is possible when striving is left to, I don't want to say left more to chance, but like left more to simply being as opposed to working on that thing with that kind of drive and the cane, you know, plodding against the floor. I hope this makes sense because I think it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I understand it. The outcome orientation that we sometimes need in situations, we need to like actually get the performance to happen. So we need to do the things. And sometimes that involves just bearing down. It's like birth. <laughs> you just do it. Um, <clears throat> and it's work, but there's something, and, and this is something that is kind of moving back from just like the individual private space of clinical work into the collective practice that you're holding space for, which is coming at this question from the place of creativity, exploration, curiosity. So opportunity for encounter with oneself and others that is not about outcome is that what's happening now? How can I be with, how can I respond, right? So hearing you, I'm like, oh, well, that's what I saw <laughs> in the class. Um, and even just you tracking with your voice, what you're seeing with this quality of like, it, it's love. It's mm -hmm. like celebration. It's like, um, noticing tracking um savoring with someone as witness as mm. they're moving so you would use your voice use your witness capacity um to draw attention to draw attention here we are here we are and where we are this is like bringing up emotions for me where we are is where it's okay Yes, yes. You don't have to force, force yes. something else. Where you are is where we are, and we're going to inhabit it. Yes, beautifully said. Yeah. You've said a couple of times, and I've said a couple of times, trust. I mean, it, it takes a, maybe a, in some ways, a, you know, a level of trust that feels out of reach in many moments to, to really trust that that kind of attentiveness 
will result in skill building in, in a dance class, just like, or I, I shouldn't say just like, but in a way that has echoes of what I was saying a few moments ago about how paying attention to these small things in a somatic experiencing session is, and trusting that, trusting that is giving rise to healing. It doesn't have to look or feel like healing or be defined by a busy mind as uh, emblematic of healing in order for that to be occurring. And I'm not trying to draw precise parallels between my own experience of somatic experiencing and, and dance and teaching, but I do think that, you know, we are talking about intelligent bodies. We're talking about different contexts for working with our own and stewarding others, profoundly intelligent bodies. And some of that intelligence means that more often than not, we're, we're sharing a space with trauma. We don't have to be addressing it therapeutically in order to acknowledge that we, we are sharing a space with it. And so if the dance experience cultivates some of that skillfulness with noticing without having to, you know, magnify, you know, we're onto something that has usefulness beyond whether or not the phrase was done well. My own experiences with post-traumatic stress is that's a whole story. But what my really three years now, going on four years with this ensemble, with the Mad Shack ensemble, has you know shown over and over and over again is that by and large, folks who come through ballet-based or Western-infused, you know, uh, white concert dance training, whether or not that person refers to it as a trauma, has absorbed some messages that damage their sense of joy and possibility in their bodies as movement artists. And the project that we just premiered in October is called X-Body, part of the X-Body project. Working on that, the, the, the starting point for that project was how, how is trauma wise in our bodies? What are, the, what are the kinds of ways our body responds to trauma that, are, that we can welcome into movement? Again, not to represent or um, depict traumatic experience, but to really ask the question at the level of the tissues. We did not spend time sharing stories, swapping stories of traumas, but there was an overwhelming and shared sense of tenderness and sadness about some of these early dance experiences. So it's just, it's relevant. It's relevant to being responsible steward of a movement space the awareness that these experiences are likely in the room and will impact how people respond to verbal prompts, how people, you know, want to be acknowledged and seen. And that opens up such rich questions for how to be a teacher and how to steward those environments in a way that is responsible to, you know, it's a, 
two hours. We're going to use it in a particular way. We're not just going to sit here and talk about these things. We are going to move, you know, but how do we do that in a way that um, allows for some experience that is not damaging to that joy and that sense of flesh and that sense of I'm me and different and also want to join and be together with these people in this room and and navigate that really rich space which i know you know all about of being alone together and together alone and a back and forth that is um that serves to remind a person of their ability to move back and forth and to choose and that's important physically it's important relationally and my goodness, it's important politically, you know, it's important in the, in the broadest frameworks and in the most intimate frameworks of how we relate to ourselves in the world. Absolutely. I keep referencing this, um, these moments that we got to witness, but that's what we were seeing, um, peeking into your classroom. <laughs> Should have asked permission. No, it's a um, gift. It's a gift. <laughs> it's, it's thank you. I mean, it's it's very special, you know, because it's not it's not something that you think about. No, you, you weren't know? you weren't imagining that there were people witnessing, but what we were witnessing was what you just described. Mm. And if more spaces could be cultivated like what you're talking about, we would have a different society and world. I sure think so. <laughs> I sure think so. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And Oh, thank you. And as I said, thank you for, you know, that this glimpse of you guys hanging in the hall. It's so, it's lovely. It's affirming and it's, you know, again, un unexpected and, um, very funny and fun to, you know, in all the ways that a dance class is and isn't performance, it's really fun and funny to be seen in that way, um, you know, from outside, but right on the edge. Yeah, so thank you. I wrote down a few things that struck me from your website. One of them was, um, what is habitual, what is transcendent and eternal, and where is the line between the two? Wow, that's so beautiful. You wrote that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's hilarious. Yeah, and it's such a great cyclical question, you know, for for every for everyone, but especially for anyone who's who's playing with movement and habit, you know, because Right. Habit, habit opens doors and it also forecloses things. And I think in some of my early, early deep somatic days, uh, you know, I thought habit was the bad, you know, habit, habit is bad, change all your habits. And of course that's, that's very stag, that thought, you know, it really encourages stagnation and, um, so yes, it is a question, you know, because we, that's what we're doing is shedding habits, forming habits. Sometimes those habits are becoming something transcendent and throughout 
our human capacity and tendency to create habits, it is there is a constant back and forth between how it is how it might be limiting and how it might be opening up new possibilities. You know, I live with a cat, as many people do. And this particular cat is, everyone thinks their cat is the smartest cat, but this, this is a really smart cat. <laughs> and um, <laughs> no, really, and <laughs> habits are formed very quickly. And there, you know, she can certainly adapt, but she has a very particular routine through the whole day. And um, it's really been, you know, funny and instructive to me, conforming to her to her habits and then noticing when and and what will prompt a change in one of her habits. Cats sort of are the teachers of that yes. quality of self-acceptance of their own process. <laughs> there aren't really right. Like they're they're not trying to please you, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And they're they're oriented to their own warmth and comfort, warmth, you know, satiation and comfort and ability to sleep. So I, I have really enjoyed uh, knowing that my day begins with, you know, fulfilling a few of my cat's expectations <laughs> without complaining or trying to change them, you know. Uh, yeah, I just really loved having this conversation and I really appreciate also <clears throat> I wanted to say how um how you've talked about some of the like the eating disorder and the PTSD um because even just speaking to those things, sharing about that takes courage and it's also dismantling <clears throat> a lot of the uh secrecy i think mm. that is sort of part of what keeps us bound well i'm grateful to you thank you thank you for having this conversation i hope we can continue the dialogue i would love to come take your class next time i'm in chicago yes please do thanks bye-bye Thank you to Molly Shanahan for this conversation. Thank you for the invitation into embodiment as a response. And thank you for all the work you're doing in the world. Please visit Molly's website to learn more about her upcoming performances, classes, and see images and video of her work. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. Thank you to my Patreons for supporting me, and thank you to my listener for joining me in the return to embodiment.